kiddos. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and as always, I am joined by Robert Brokamp and Dayana Yoakum, personal finance experts here at The Motley Fool. We've received a lot of mail from you, our darling listeners. So today, we're going to try to get to as many as possible. We're going to cover how much money you need to start investing, the best ways to give money to a, someone you love or don't love, just anyone else. And I'm going to get confused about IRA contributions. So I'm very <laughs> excited about that part. And then before we're done, we're going to make our first inductee into the Foolish Hall of Shame. These are very exciting times. They really are. All right, let's get into our first question. This comes to us from Matt T. I'm looking at my asset allocation. Should I consider my home and the equity in my home as an investment, or should I consider my investment portfolio independently? You know, it's funny. When I first saw this question, my immediate reaction was like, no, your home is not an investment. Your home is a place to live. And then as I started thinking about it more, I'm like, well, wait, how do financial planners account for homes in uh, hey, I think some, we have one here. Oh, hey, oh, hey Robert. We just might, yes. We just might have a financial planner here. Um, How I would do you say, account for homes? I would say that your home is an asset, not necessarily as an investment. So you buy an investment because of how much you think it'll appreciate in the future and all that good stuff. You buy a home for plenty of other options, the schools, if it has enough rooms, whether you like the lawn, things like that. But you are paying it off. It's money that goes out of your pocket towards the mortgage. It's a resource for when you retire. You could either downsize or get a reverse mortgage, so it's mm-hmm. important. How it does affect your investment portfolio, I would say, is considering um, where you live in relation to what you invest in. So, for example, trivia question, mm. how much is the average home in the city of Detroit? Not the suburbs, the actual city. Somewhere between $500 <laughs> and, and 65000 I'm going to say... Thirty thousand. Okay, forty-one thousand oh, dollars. But there are difference. houses that they're selling for like a thousand dollars just to get them off. And what's the reason for that? Well, the decline in the auto industry has has decimated the city. So, um, if you're living in a city that is really reliant on one industry or one particular company, you should maybe invest in other types of companies to diversify. So I say also, when I'm in in my portfolio, I look at my exposure to real estate in general. And I do consider that I own both my home and I have a rental property. So I'm pretty exposed to real estate in a, in a very undiversified right. uh, way. But I, I do think about that as I look at the mix of my other assets. Right. Yeah. One thing that I always find interesting is how people in different countries invest. Well, that makes me sound like such a scholar, but it's really just whenever I meet <laughs> the Belgians, someone. For right, example. I know. You're so worldly. But, I know, I'm so well traveled. So, uh, but one thing I do know is because we have a Motley Fool has an office in the UK, we do have a certain amount of insight into the UK investor, and they are much less invested in the stock market, individual investors, and they're much more interested in investing in real estate and their homes. Um, which, I don't know, I just thought that was interesting. Right, and they call their retirement plans schemes, which I think is always a little confusing. Oh, like, oh yeah, I'm contributing to my scheme, scheme, except with a better accent, of course. And so it sounds a little curious. Yeah, Can you do it with a Liverpudlian accent? <laughs> I'm not going to try it. Like, It'll be hello, like mate, I'm oh, contributing to my scheme. <laughs> that was really good. That was good, yeah. Thank you. But I think it's good to reiterate what you said earlier, that your home can become an income-producing asset. Mm-hmm. Uh, with reverse mortgages and retirement. So in that instance, I think you do consider it more within your investing portfolio. But I think for Matt, it's look at your home as as a place to live and invest accordingly. 
Our next question comes from Melissa M. What are the best ways to invest for your kids, grandkids, nieces, or nephews? Like five two nines? I would say you have to think about what's the goal. So if you want to help these kids with their college savings, then yeah, 529. It's a college savings plan sponsored by states, but you don't have to participate in your own states. If it's used for qualified higher education expenses, the money grows tax-free. It's a great thing to um, give your kids. The great thing, too, though, is you retain control over it. So it's not like you're giving them money. You're really helping out the parents. And If I'm not a parent, can I set up a 529 for, like, someone? Yep, parent. If you're a grandparent, friend, uh, you want to help my kids, you can set up one for my <laughs> I kids. set up one for I your kids. I think that's a great idea. Oh, that's um, nice. If it's for some other reason, then college, maybe you just want to set them up, teach them about investing, have a down payment for the house. Uh, if they're younger... If they're a minor, it'll have to be a custodial account. It's mostly, in most studies, it's, it's called an UTMA. What letters are you saying? UTMA. U-T-M-A. Thank you. Universe, universal transfer to minors, something or other. I think you're making like, most of those words up. I think I got, I believe M stand, does stand for minors. So an yes. U-T-M-A. Exactly. The thing, though, is once the kid reaches a certain age, that becomes their money. They can do with it what they want. Um, it also can hurt their financial aid because anything that the kid actually owns counts more against financial aid than if it's owned by a parent or something like that. So um, one thing that a lot of people do actually is just they invest on their own. So let's say I want to help a, a nephew out. I open an account. It's my money. I put the money in. I show the nephew this is what you're going to get one day. These are the stocks I bought. Let's talk about them. But then I can gift that money to the nephew when I feel like the the nephew is um, ready for the money, is going to use it in in an appropriate way. It's not going to count against his financial aid or anything like that. Um, So I actually think that's probably the best way if you don't know what the money is going to be used for eventually. But you can also lord it over him if you don't rake the lawn. Exactly. Exactly. And what are the tax implications of doing that then? Are you going to get taxed on that when you hand it over or do you just give them the account and there's no taxes until the kid cashes it out and right. buys a new guitar. Right. Because let's then, face it, the kid is going to buy like exactly, an amp. Exactly. And then the kid will have to pay the taxes. You do have to worry um, about gift and estate taxes if you are gifting or leaving more than $5 million or more than 10 if you're a married couple. Most people are not in that situation, so you don't have to worry about it. But if you are, call me. <laughs> <laughs> we are accepting applications. Our next question comes to us from Scott. He wants to know, how much money do I have to have to invest in something, anything? $100, $500, $1,000? All right, this is a great question. We get this a lot. Uh, and the answer is, well, first let's confirm that we're talking about other money here, meaning it's $100 or $500 or $1,000 that's not already spoken for. So you don't need it to pay off high interest credit card debt. You don't need it for your emergency savings account because you you've already got that. And lastly, you're already contributing to your employer-sponsored re- retirement plan, your 401k or 403b, at least up into the company yeah. match. Let's assume that Scott has got his financial life in order and he's ready to take the next step. Great. You're ready to pass go. Start investing. And, and literally, you can go online and buy a share of Disney, which is around $94 right now, or Amazon. 290 bucks, Home Depot for $100, 
And you can do that really cheaply. Most discount online brokers charge around 5 to $10 for the transaction, whether you're buying a single share or hundreds of shares of stock or even mutual funds or ETFs. And many have no minimum investment requirement. And so a discount, just to remind our listeners, a discount broker is you go online. Um, there's um, E-Trade is one of them. Scott there's Trade, Scott Trade, um, First Trade, TD Ameritrade. Share Builder. Share yeah. Builder. You can go online to fool.com and we can link you to some discount brokers that have deals. Yeah, so you look so you look and you see what is the minimum investment requirement. If there is one, usually it's anywhere from 500 to $2500, but like I said for a cash account, oftentimes it's 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 nothing. You just set up an account, and you can start buying shares. If you only have a little money to start, uh, you should look for a, bro- a brokerage with an automatic investment plan, and what that is it's set up so you can buy stocks, funds, or ETFs on a recurring schedule. And w- whenever you have money to add add to the account, so it can buy partial shares or or full shares when you're ready to do that. The key here, and especially when we're talking about smallish amounts of money, is to keep the costs of investing from eating up your earnings. So we're talking mostly about trading and transaction fees here. And a good rule of thumb is that fees should be kept to less than two percent of your overall, or if your of your account's overall worth. So if you have ten thousand dollars in an account, two percent of that is two hundred dollars. Most discount brokers are going to charge you like seven dollars a trade yeah. or ten dollars a trade. Yeah. So you could right. even so you can do a transaction by transaction. Let's say your, your broker charges seven dollars a trade to keep under the two percent fee threshold. That means you have you want to have saved up at least $350 to invest each time you want to transact. Right. That keeps you under the 2, 2%. What if I'm not ready to continually invest $350 every month? Is it okay for me to just go buy like a share of a company I really like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, you still want to keep the cost of the commission in mind, but you can do that. You can buy a handful of... The first time I ever bought stocks, I, it really was one, two, three shares of like... Home Depot and Was that Intel. the first stock you bought? Uh, no, it was actually Dayton Power & Light, a utility in Ohio. You still own it? I don't, but it was a very good investment, very high-yielding investment. Oh, um, well. Yes, well, thank you very much. <laughs> well, aren't you um, smart? Yes, Barnes & Noble. I, I own like two shares of Barnes & Noble when I first started investing. So, um, yeah, you can do that, and we think it's a great idea because it gets you uh, to start following those mm-hmm. companies. Once you own a share, you, you pay a little more attention when you go into the Barnes & Noble. You're like, are people buying books here? Or what about the Nook? Well, maybe not so much. But it makes you pay attention a little bit more, so I think it's a good idea. Yeah. So go for it, Scott. Our next question comes from Diane B. She says, I am 55 and learned from your podcast that my 2015 contribution to my 401k can be $24,000, $18,000 plus $6,000 since I am over 50. My question is, is the contribution to my work 401k and my Roth IRA in my Fidelity account both included in the 24000 So this is, as promised at the top of the show, this is the point in the podcast where I get confused and my eyes glaze over and I just kind of like want to fall asleep a little bit. Um, Robert, all right, Robert so make it exciting for me. I, I don't know about that, so, but I'll give you the answer. And the answer is no. Um, oh, wait, so, what was the question again? So the, right? <laughs> so the question is, is the contribution to my work 401k and my Roth IRA both included in that 24000 No. So let's start, first of all, can you contribute to both a 401k and an IRA? Yes. Um, so the contribution to one doesn't affect the contribution to another. Um, so you can max out your 401k and you can max out your IRA. They're independent of each other. Now, I, just, I just want to point out for everyone listening that Robert is using 
really good like hand signals Big here. Hand you got the left yeah. hand is your workplace, <laughs> your 401k, and your right hand is an IRA. Okay, yeah. keep going. Everybody listening, raise your hands. <laughs> left and right. So uh, they're independent. Now, there are lots of things that will determine how much you contribute to which type of IRA, Roth or traditional, and whether you can deduct that or not. That's very um, confusing and convoluted. What I actually recommend you do with that is, on Fidelity, since you mentioned Fidelity, on their website, there's something called an IRA contribution calculator. You go in there, you enter information, it'll tell you whether you're eligible for Roth, traditional, all that type handy. of stuff. Very handy. And a lot less boring. So go ahead and do that. You can play with the calculator online. Whee! Fun. I hope it delivers like a pie chart or something. <laughs> all right. Well, that, I mean, I guess you made that pretty painless. So there you go, Diane. Yeah. Bottom line answer, no. No. Okay. No. All right. Our next question comes to us from Bruce M. And he says, as we've all most likely experienced in the last few years, our credit card companies are shutting down a credit card and reissuing a new number due to one of the many security breaches. I think my MasterCard changed three times in the past year and a half. Does this affect my score? I pay all my bills monthly and owe no money. So good for you, Bruce. Yeah. High five. Virtual high five. Virtual high five for for paying off those bills. I'll do it. I'll raise up my right hand. (laughs) High five. (laughs) Bruce, We're gesturing that? wildly here at the studio <laughs> as we answer these questions. That's a great question, and uh, and the answer is no. It does not affect your credit score. Uh, you know how your your credit card expires and they send you a new one? It's the same thing there. Uh, it's still the same line of credit, still the same payment history, the same debt-to-available to credit ratio. All of that stuff follows that that card. Not necessarily that number, but that line of credit around. And you'll see it as one entry in your credit report. You might have one entry, but with various account numbers. It has no effect whatsoever on your credit score. So there you go, Bruce. The answer is, yet again, no. <laughs> All right. We should, we should put out the cliff notes, cliff notes for <laughs> no, this. This is the no episode. The next episode we do where we answer mailbags, we'll just give the answers and not the questions. <laughs> so we'll just be like, no, yes, sometimes. 42. 42. Thank you very much. This has been Molly Full Answers. All right. Our next question comes to us from Chip. I have been looking to start a business. I have no debt, including a paid off house and sufficient capital. Should I pay cash for the business or should I leverage a line of credit to fund the business? I hate withdrawing money from my non-qualified accounts, but I also hate the idea of debt. Robert, remind me really quickly, what is a non-qualified account? Well, I'll just say a qualified account is something like a 401k or 403b. Non-qualified is everything else. Okay. So withdrawing money from the non-qualified accounts would expose me to taxes. Any thoughts? No. Oh, wait. <laughs> 42. Thank you, Chip. Uh, okay, so I'm going to start, first of all, uh, by saying make sure, Chip, that you're ready to start a business. Depending on who you ask, something like 50% to 90% of businesses fail. So a lot of people quit their jobs, start their business, and fail. You should ease into it while you still have an income. So assuming that you did that and you think this is a viable business, um, There's the answer to the question. There you, you didn't go. Ask. Right there. <laughs> right. Um, Are you sure about this? <laughs> right. So, um, I hope you don't mean that you're going to be taking any money, the, the cash from a qualified account, IRA or 401k. I bring this up because I spoke with someone else who was at the Fool years ago, coincidentally named Chip, and uh, he had started business throughout his life and kept taking money out of his 401ks. He reached age 65. Businesses 
uh, didn't succeed, had no money in his 401k. So you definitely want to leave those alone when you're starting the business. Now, the question between cash and borrowing depends on the business uh, and, and what you're going to use as collateral. He mentioned that his house is paid off. So it, it just sort of put this little idea in my head that he might be borrowing money from his house to pay, mm-hmm. and I would say that's not a great idea. You, because you risk the, the roof over your head. Right, exactly. You don't want to do that. Um, on the other hand, if using cash means you don't have any cash left over to pay your bills or anything, um, you may have to borrow money, and that leaves some cash in the bank, and you cover the bills until the business takes off. So in that situation, uh, borrowing the money is not such a bad idea, assuming, of course, that you, the business does well. Um, like which, if it's Facebook. Right, and remember, <laughs> most of them don't. Right, most of them don't. I mean, actually, I think what most people do is a good idea is do both. You have your job, but then you have your business on the side. Um, and when you retire, you devote your full time to that other business, which is happening more and more often. The, the segment with the, the fastest growing number of people who are starting their own business is actually like 55 and 65 and up. So you can do that too. Um, but also, you mentioned the tax consequences of selling investments. It's important to know that when people start a business, their tax bracket usually plummets because they're not making a lot of money. They now have a bunch of expenses that are deductible. If you are in the 15% tax bracket, all your long-term capital gains are taxed at nothing. It's uh, tax-free gains. So you may not have the tax consequences that you fear you will have if you have to sell some investments to raise capital. All right. So bottom line advice for Chip, it depends. It depends. It really does. Just Um, don't risk your retirement or your roof. Exactly. All right. Last question. So if you guys had to start a business in your retirement or were going to start a business in your retirement, what would it be? Half-assed crafts. (laughs) 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 So, I mean, I'm not like very good at putting stuff together. So, but if you want something that's kind of okay, it'll it'll stay together. It'll look great for like five weeks and then it might start falling apart. I'm your gal. That's my business. <laughs> all right, cool. Not at all cool. <laughs> I don't like that plan at all. But I did just bring the question on you, so that's okay that that's your answer. Robert, how about you? What would what business would you start in your retirement? My kids got all kinds of eye devices for Christmas, and I'm struggling to figure out like the best parental controls, the best apps to use to keep it safe, to monitor use without being too nosy. There's ton of stuff out there. You read about something like, hey, that's a great app, and then you read the reviews, and then it's like, this stinks. Um, so I think there is a business in saying, hey, Mr. Business Person, I just bought this iPhone or iPad for my kid. Tell me everything I need to do to make it safe and make sure they're not on, you know, playing Minecraft all day long. Uh, make it so that if it gets stolen, I can find it, which just happened to my own iPhone a few weeks ago. Um, all kinds of things like that. There's a huge business opportunity for parents to just go somewhere and get it all done. So you want you want to start Nosy Dad Incorporated? I think so. Absolutely. <laughs> wonderful. Well, then, if you are fair, our wonderful listeners have what? What about you? What are you going to start? Oh, um, you know what? I would just start like a little knitting shop, Aww. and it would just be a little store, um, and I would just sell yarn, and we would just all knit, and we would gab and gossip and get drunk and knit. I I would totally come to that and knit some stuff that you couldn't tell what it was. Right? So <laughs> I, bet, I bet it would be half-assed. Sk- sk- yep, skipping stitches. <laughs> skipping, yeah, well, after we've had a little red wine, it'll probably get a little half-assed. But uh, yeah, I think that, I don't know, that's just the first thing that comes to mind, right? Just having a little shop. 
sounds pleasant. It does. it does sound pleasant. And it'll fail. <laughs> it'll be one of those 70%. <laughs> I don't think I asked you. Super supportive over there. <laughs> Why are both of you so mean? Well, this is a very exciting day today because today we are going to announce the inaugural inductee to the Motley Fool Money Hall of Shame. And the person who has the honor of the announcement is Robert Procamp. And it's not just one inductee, it is a group, and that is the managers of mutual funds. Actually, most have trouble beating an index fund. 2014 was one of the worst years for mutual fund managers. So generally speaking, uh, 80% of them lost to the market. If you look at l- US large caps, 13%, only 13% outperformed. One of the worst years in wow. decades. Yeah. Um, and of course, we have to name one example. So. There is one called the NISA fund. NISA. NISA. Uh, its annual expenses, 5.4%. Oh, wow. So when you think of the market historically returning 10%, and they're taking out the 5.4, ridiculous. Giving half of your money away, half right. of your profits away. Oh, wow. So since 2009, in every year except one, it's finished in the bottom 1% to 3%. Who gives of money to these people? That's the thing that I find interesting. That said, it's only got like $2 million left in it, which you compare to most funds having a billion or two. So it's gone out of business soon, but at least there's a good reason for it. Now, that said, there were, oh, here's a question for you. Of the 25 biggest mutual funds in the world, how many of them do you think actually beat their respective index? Well, you just told me a stat about how only 13% beat the S&P. Right, the large it caps, 20% large caps in general. So, of the, But of the biggest 25 mutual funds, only four beat their benchmark. And when you think of big funds, of course, that means those are the type that most people have. Right. Mm-hmm. If you look at the 25 that actually beat the market, um, and some did, some as high as like 21%, you're talking about funds like the, uh, the Double Line Schiller Enhanced Cape Fund or the <laughs> Buffalo Dividend Fund. In other words, these are funds that most people have never heard of and probably don't own. I'm not investing in any buffalo dividends, whether it's New York or the actual animal. Right. Not interested. (laughs) They invest in hides. Uh, Actually, there was one good fund that I found interesting. It was the Eventide, Eventide Gilead Fund, and here's their official strategy. The investment philosophy is rooted in the biblical understanding that God's great intent for business is that it serve and in turn bless humankind. Hmm. What it does, but I might find that interesting because I was studying to be a priest at one point. But what they do is they only We're just going to gloss over that, by right, the way. That's right. We'll and, be coming and back and to amen that. to that. Uh, they, when they, before they invest in a company, they look at how the company treats its employees, customers, suppliers, uh, the community overall, and the environment. That's, that sounds pretty cool. Yeah, it is pretty cool. So, sounds like socially responsive socially respons- socially responsible. Conscious right. capitalism, all that right. stuff. I mean, there are type of funds called socially responsible. And like those funds, this fund doesn't invest in things like tobacco stocks and things that harm people's health or the environment. So I actually found that kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can find them. They exist. But they're few and far between, especially in 2014. And chances are you didn't own them. Yeah. Mm. Wah, wah, wah. Wah, wah. That is a horrible, horrible year for actively managed funds, which ho- 
hopefully gets people to start looking at their the expense ratios in particular of their funds. Right. Yeah. So check out. See. Look at what's in your four hundred one k. I should say that all these wonderful stats came from Morningstar, which is the fund research company, um, and it's a great source actually to go look at mm-hmm. well, how your funds are doing. And they did a study looking at what is the number one predictor of future performance of a fund, and it's expenses. What's the takeaway here? Well, first of all, you shouldn't base an investment decision on just one year's return. Every fund will occasionally have a slip up here and there. But if your actively managed fund has not beaten its respective index fund over the last three to five years, sell it, just go with the index fund. And you can get that information from Morningstar? Right, Morningstar.com. That sounds like good advice. And that, there you have it, our inaugural inductee into the Money Hall of Shame, the what fund? The NYSA, NISA, N-Y-S-A fund. However you pronounce that, it stinks. All right, guys. Well, that's the show for today. Again, keep the compliments and questions coming to answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp and Diana Yoakum, I'm Allison Southwick. Fool on. Fool on.